This is Medieval Death Trip for Thursday, May 11th, 2023, episode 100, concerning the litigious origins of printing. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the show where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. I'm happy to be back to celebrate our 100th episode, uh, not counting the prologue episode. After over a month of dealing with laryngitis and other throat issues, uh, it's good to finally be back at the microphone. For the show's centenary milestone, I thought it seemed appropriate to take a look at a seminal milestone in technology and media, one whose emergence traditionally helps mark the end of the Middle Ages, the printing press. The development of printing in Europe is a fascinating little case study in how historical common knowledge comes to be. If I say, who invented the printing press? I'm sure many of you will have the ready answer of Johannes Gutenberg. Some might hesitate and offer instead the more qualified statement, Gutenberg was responsible for popularizing the use of the printing press. That certainly feels more likely to be true. Uh, Most of us these days are trained, at least after primary school, to be rather skeptical of individual attributions of invention and discovery, especially for things from before the 19th century or so. Well, the relationship of Gutenberg to the printing press has indeed been a site of contention between claims and doubts, not just recently in our age's interest in breaking down legends of the great individual genius, But for centuries, people have been debating Gutenberg's status as the father of movable-type printing. I'm not going to make any grand claims of settling that debate in this episode, uh, though I'll share what I've gleaned the current scholarly consensus appears to be. But I am going to offer one grand claim, and I presume no originality in proposing this, uh, though I haven't read enough recent scholarship on the history of print to cite anyone else who has already floated this idea— But, having read the period sources, several of which I'll present today, I kind of feel like the printing press was not just a new and important technology, but it might have been the first major technology in the way that we conceptualize technology now in the 21st century. What I mean by that is that it developed as a commercialized industrial technology that was a mix of both trade secret and trade skill and engineering which is to say that it was a technology that was also a singular invention in contrast to things like gunpowder or flying buttresses or even windmills or mechanical clocks. Obviously, ancient and medieval artisans had trade secrets and carefully guarded methods of attaining certain colors of stained glass or forging Damascus steel, but those feel like they're in a different category, something a little closer to the secret formula for Coca-Cola than the mechanical blueprints on a patent. There may well be some bit of earlier military technology that could fit the pattern of new technology that I'm talking about, uh, but that's the only other place I can think of where innovation in this style might have occurred. A corollary to this proposition is that Gutenberg takes on the mantle, uh, if not of father of printing, then at least of first person of the type we now associate with the Silicon Valley tech bro, or at least tech-based entrepreneur, a career that feels strikingly modern in the way it was shaped by broken deals and acrimonious partnerships, not to mention contested claims over who actually was responsible for inventing what. But we'll come to that later. Let's start with an overview of the history of printing. Not from modern scholars, 
but from someone who was there to witness it. The following account comes from the Chronicle of Cologne, a work printed by Johann Kohlhoff the Younger in 1499. By all accounts, the most notable thing about this chronicle is this chapter that it includes about the invention of printing. At least, virtually every description of it I found mentions the description of printing and almost nothing else about the contents or even the authorship of the chronicle. The translation I'll be reading comes from Antonius Vanderlyn's book, The Harlem Legend of the Invention of Printing, itself translated from the Dutch by J. H. Hessels in 1871. This book will be the source for the translations of several of our 15th century texts in this episode, so expect to hear Vanderlyn's name a few more times. One quick terminology note before we get to the Cologne Chronicle. One type of book mentioned here as a major early production are Donatuses. I've explained what these are before, a long time back in episode 9, concerning the wretched fate of a grammar teacher. But since that might not be at the top of your memory, here's a refresher. A. Donatus is a Latin grammar textbook. It takes its name from a 4th century grammarian, Alias Donatus. So people would refer to having a Donatus in the same way we might talk about looking up something in our strunken white. Grammar textbooks were one of the first big print bestsellers, which actually makes a lot of sense if you think about the market for books. Who needs quick and comparatively cheap copies of books? Students. A hand-copied manuscript would be beyond the budget of a typical late medieval student, but printed books, while still a considerable investment, were more attainable and more affordable. So, as is still the case for many a publisher today, tapping into the student textbook market was a way to subsidize more niche productions. But let's let the Cologne Chronicle tell us the rest of that story at least as it was understood by the Chronicle's primary informant on this topic, Ulrich Zell, a Hessian-born printer who had set up shop in Cologne in the late 1400s. So, here's the Chronicle's chapter on the origins of printing, as translated into English by J.H. Hessels. When, where, and by whom was found out the unspeakably useful art of printing books. Here we have especially to observe that of late the love and ardor of mankind have decreased very much, or have been polluted, at one time by vainglory, at another time by covetousness, idleness, etc., particularly reprehensible in the clergy, who are more watchful and anxious to gather temporal good and to seek the enjoyments of the flesh than the salvation of the soul. Whereby the common people fall into great error, for they and their leaders seek only temporal good, as if there were no eternal good or eternal life hereafter. In order, therefore, that the negligence of our leaders and the evil example and corruption of the divine word by all preachers in general, who cause their immoral covetousness to be heard and observed, at the same time might not be too great an impediment and injury to good Christians, and in order that nobody might excuse himself, the eternal God has produced out of his impenetrable wisdom the present excellent art whereby books are printed and multiplied, so that every person himself is able to read, or to hear read, the way to salvation. How should I attempt to write or to relate the praise, the advantage, and the bliss which arise and have arisen from this art? For they are inexpressible. Let all who love letters testify it, 
God gives it to laymen who are able to read German, to the learned who must make use of the Latin language, to monks and nuns, in short, to all. Oh, how many prayers, what unspeakable edification is derived from printed books. How many precious and wholesome exhortations are given in preaching. All this arises from this noble art. Oh, how great an advantage and blessing proceed, if they choose, from those who either make or are instrumental in making printed books. And he who wishes to read about this may peruse the little book written by the great and celebrated Dr. Johannes Gerson, De Laude Scriptorum, or the book of the spiritual father and abbot of Spanheim, Johannes von Trittenheim. This highly valuable art was discovered first of all in Germany, at Mainz on the Rhine, and it is a great honor to the German nation that such ingenious men are found among them. And it took place about the year of our Lord 1440, and from this time until the year 1450, the art and what is connected with it was being investigated. And in the year of our Lord 1450, it was a golden year, or jubilee, and they began to print, and the first book they printed was the Bible in Latin. It was printed in a large letter, resembling the letter with which at present missiles are printed. Although the art, as has been said, was discovered at Mainz in the manner as it is now generally used, yet the first prefiguration was found in Holland, the Netherlands, in the Donatuses which were printed there before that time. And from these Donatuses, the beginning of the said art was taken, and it was invented in a manner much more masterly and subtle than this, and became more and more ingenious. One named Omnibonus wrote in a preface to the book called Quinctilianus, and in some other books too, that a Walloon from France named Nicholas Jensen discovered first of all this masterly art. But that is untrue, for there are those still alive who testify that books were printed at Venice before Nicholas Jensen came there and began to cut and make letters. But the first inventor of printing was a citizen of Mainz, born at Strasbourg, and named Junker Johann Gutenberg. From Mainz, the art was introduced first of all into Cologne, then into Strasbourg, and afterwards into Venice. The origin and progress of the art was told me verbally by the Honorable Master Ulrich Zell of Hanau, still printer at Cologne, anno 1499, by whom the said art came into Cologne. There are also some confident persons who say that books had been printed already before, but this is not true, for we find in no country books printed at that time. Moreover, many books have been lost, which we can find nowhere because so little was written, as, for instance, the large volume of Titus Livius, the books of the gods written by Tullius, the books of the wars of the Germans with the Romans by Plinius, of which few or none are found. This useful and divine art has calumniators, as all other things, but this is, as seems to me, too unreasonable, for things which we learn and which are worthy of being read and reflected upon should not be prohibited. What is more useful and salutary than to concern ourselves with things which regard God and our salvation? Not all understand the Holy Scriptures who read them in Latin, neither do those who read the Scriptures translated into German. But if both will be diligent, they will then derive great learning and delight from the Latin as well as from the German edition, as I often heard from clergymen who discoursed of spiritual things with heartiness and courage. But this disfavor is mostly on the part of the unlearned, who are not able, because of their great lukewarmness and ignorance, to answer when they are questioned by well-disposed persons about those things, and thus become ashamed. Others fear that errors arise from the art of printing. But even if this were the case, they would soon be refuted by the scholars. 
It is seldom seen or heard that heresy springs up from the common people, but generally, and most of all, from the pedants. There are also those who think that the multiplication of books is injurious. I should like to hear why. For those who love art and honor, it is now an agreeable, golden, and blissful time in which they can plant and sow the field of their understanding with innumerable wondrous seeds, or enlighten it with many heavenly rays. But of those who love neither the art nor their soul, I say, if they choose, they may learn in a short time with half the labor as much as one could do formerly in many years. This arises from the great diligence, in multifarious ways, of those who print books, which are infinitely better than those which were written in former times. But is it of any use to one who will injure himself? Aesop tells us that a cock found a very precious stone on a dunghill, but did not know it, and threw it away. It is not proper to cast pearls before swine. Blessed be they who use the talents which God has given them, and thereby gain still more. So, there's both a history and defense of the printed word. Let's start a little analysis here with some notes on the historical timeline presented by the Chronicle. You might have noticed that this account seems to indicate the existence of printed books before Gutenberg, while still crediting him with the invention of printing. What's going on there? Here we run into an issue with the lack of precise technical terminology for our chronicler to use. There was a kind of printing that preceded Gutenberg. This is woodcut block printing, or xylography, literally wood writing. That's where you relief carve a block of wood, ink it, and press it onto paper, and you get a printed page. You can find versions of xylography in the ancient world, in the Middle East and China, uh, though it didn't become common in Europe until the late 1300s, early 1400s, with the introduction of paper, since paper received block-printed images much better than vellum or parchment did. But block printing had significant limitations for book production. Each woodblock contains just one permanent design. So to xylographically produce a Donatus, for example, you'd need an individually carved block for every page, or maybe a two-page folio that gets folded to make a set of individual pages if we want to get technical. Regardless, that's a lot of wood blocks to keep track of and store, and wood will wear out and whole plates will have to be intricately recut, etc. Now, there's debate over how many block-printed books actually predate Gutenberg. Earlier scholars like Vanderlind identified quite a few, but more recent scholarship has thrown those datings into question, indicating that in many cases, dates either contemporary with Gutenberg in the 1450s or in the decade or two following are more probable, with block-printed books not being the predecessor of Gutenberg's press, but rather an alternative to it, uh, good for mass-producing cheap textbooks for a market that had been stoked by the more sophisticated form of press. And just to add to this confusion, Gutenberg also printed editions of Donatus on his press, and it's hard to know if the Cologne Chronicler is conflating block-printed Donatuses with Gutenberg Donatuses, but in terms of the larger technological narrative, 
We do know that block printing was in use in Europe several decades before Gutenberg, uh, especially for printing playing cards as well as other single-sheet images. It's just that block printing of whole books might not actually have predated Gutenberg by as much as the Cologne Chronicler and Vanderlind suggest. So what is it that Gutenberg brings to the table? The major innovation credited to him is implementing movable type made of cast metal in the printing process. Now, the debate over that credit has two threads. One takes a global perspective, and in that case, the first known developer of a movable type printing process was Bi Sheng, a Chinese artisan of the late 10th, early 11th centuries. In the 1040s, he invented a system using ceramic tiles to print Chinese characters. Certainly, Europe had increasing contact with China and East Asia in the late Middle Ages, and it's possible that some description of this process reached the Rhineland where Gutenberg then attempted to replicate it. But it's kind of equally plausible that Gutenberg's movable type was a natural, independent development off of die-punching techniques that medieval goldsmiths and metal workers had been mastering, and we know that Gutenberg was recorded as being a goldsmith when he was living in Strasbourg. In die punching, you're making individual dies to press designs into metal or leather, and there's evidence of early 15th century experiments with using an arrangement of dies to imprint plates that could then be inked like a woodblock. So with our hindsight, it seems kind of obvious that someone working with that system would have the eureka moment that you don't have to use the dies to make a singular plate. You can just put ink on the dies themselves and let them function as the plate. And that is basically what typography is. You have individual letters cast in metal that can be arranged into lines and lines into a page, something that, while it sounds tedious, can still be done much faster than hand carving all those letters into a woodblock. Plus, the metal letters last much longer before wearing out than wooden ones do. Also, once you have the molds for the letters, you can kind of mass produce the metal type, which adds regularity. Copies of letters will be identical in size and shape to each other, which is not the case with hand-carved text. So, anyway, maybe Gutenberg was inspired by reports from travelers to China, or maybe by the experience of his own trade, or maybe a bit of both. Certainly, in world history, we can't credit Gutenberg with the sole invention of movable type, though metal typography and the particular mechanics of the printing press that did directly revolutionize media in the early modern period come from him. Or do they? That's the second thread of debate. Was Gutenberg even the first European to develop movable type, or does that credit belong to someone else? I'm not actually prepared to rehearse that whole debate. Uh, What I can say, based on my limited knowledge and recent reading, is that in the 19th century, there was more doubt and stronger arguments were being made for alternative candidates. But as of the 21st century, while there are still some arguments for other first inventors, the general consensus is that the existing evidence supports what the Cologne Chronicle says, which is that Gutenberg was the originator of the form of typographic printing that would go on to be imitated throughout Europe and then the world. We'll come back to Gutenberg the person in a little bit. But before we leave the Cologne Chronicle, we should take a moment to consider the defense of printing that it makes. As our chronicler notes, not everyone was enthusiastic about this new way of making books. So 
how about we hear from one of those contemporary critics? Here's a passage by Johannes Trithemius, a German abbot and cryptographer and general Renaissance man, though one with distinctly medieval preferences for media. Trithemius compares the new art of printing unfavorably to the old art, or time-tested art, as he would probably prefer to put it, of hand-copied manuscripts. This translation comes from the textbook Writing Materials, edited by Evelyn B. Tribble and Anne Trubeck. Here's Trithemius's Defense of Scribes. Brothers, nobody should say or think, what is the sense of bothering with copying by hand when the art of printing has brought to light so many important books, a huge library can be acquired inexpensively? I tell you, the man who says this only tries to conceal his own laziness. All of you know the difference between a manuscript and a printed book. The word written on parchment will last a thousand years. The printed word is on paper. How long will it last? The most you can expect a book of paper to survive is 200 years. Yet, there are many who think they can entrust their works to paper. Only time will tell. Yes, many books are now available in print, but no matter how many books will be printed, there will always be some left unprinted and worth copying. No one will ever be able to locate and buy all printed books. Even if all works ever written would appear in print, the devoted scribe should not relax in his zeal. On the contrary, he will guarantee permanence to useful printed books by copying them. Otherwise, they would not last long. His labor will render mediocre books better, worthless ones more valuable, and perishable ones more lasting. The inspired scribe will always find something worth his trouble. He does not depend on the printer, he is free, and as a scribe, enjoys his freedom. He is by no means defeated by the printer. He must not cease copying just because the art of printing has been invented. He should pursue his path without looking back. He should be certain that in the eyes of God, his reward will not be less without regard to anyone else. He who gives up copying because of the invention of printing is no genuine friend of Holy Scripture. He sees only what is and contributes nothing to the edification of future generations. But we, beloved brothers, shall keep in mind the reward of this sacred occupation and not slacken our efforts even if we were to own many thousands of books. Printed books will never be equivalent of handwritten codices, especially since printed books are often deficient in spelling and appearance. The simple reason is that copying by hand involves more diligence and industry. Trithemius is writing this in the year 1492, at the cusp of another epoch-dividing moment before Columbus returns from America with news of a new world, or rather, of a sea route to Asia, as he believed. Regardless, in our historical hindsight, it's hard not to see the irony of Trithemius predicting the lasting centrality of a medieval form of media in one of the precise years proposed for marking the end of the Middle Ages. Listening to these arguments, 
print will make more writing available to more people in greater quantities versus print will be ephemeral and crude and amateurish compared to the ancient scribal arts. It's hard not to draw direct analogies to modern debates surrounding virtually every form of new media. Indeed, the argument, you think X is ruining culture? Well, that's what elitists said about the printing press, too, where X is social media or YouTube or reality TV. Uh, That line is basically a cliché at this point. The implication is always that any critic of a new form of media is on the wrong side of history. I think it's a bit of a facetious analogy uh, in that there's certainly truth in the historical pattern of cultural gatekeepers resisting new technologies and new media, uh, especially disruptive forms. But of course, it's also true that disruptions and transformations usually involve some degree of destruction. These kinds of developments rarely emerge as a pure add-on to culture, a new fresh space to branch out into, usually their development competes for cultural space and resources with something older and established. And while that competition isn't necessarily a zero-sum game where there's only one survivor, there will certainly be loss and casualties. And I think it's fair to let those losses at least temper the enthusiasm for the new a little bit. I mean, the rise of printing did pretty much kill medieval manuscript culture. But what did we lose by that, a modern person might ask? Surely print does everything hand-copying can do and better. Anyone mourning the loss of manuscript culture is, at best, mourning the loss of a certain aesthetic, and at worst, you're mourning a system of information control and restriction and gatekeeping that we should say good riddance to. So, that's not entirely wrong. But there are subtleties that lie between the knee-jerk condemnation of new technology and the knee-jerk celebration of new technology. Take the idea of the information economy, for example. Our stock assumptions are that print liberates and propagates information that had been controlled by the scriptoria throughout the Middle Ages. Finally, the press freed ideas from the iron clutches of the church authorities. However, scholar Jan Zilkowski notes that despite the popular image of medieval authorities burning books alongside burning heretics, Actual book burnings were far more common with printed books in the early modern and modern eras. He writes, quote, In manuscript cultures, problematic or controversial texts seem often not to attract the attention of the authorities until after the barn door has been opened. Only when enough copies have been made do officials learn of them and peruse them. Then they must track down other copies, an effort that often requires urging the individuals or institutions in possession of them to destroy them on their own. Here, the reverence of manuscript cultures for the expense and effort involved in making manuscripts seems to render those who produce and maintain the objects reluctant to destroy them. End quote. In fact, in certain contexts, it has actually been easier to control and restrict the flow of information in the modern world than in the Middle Ages. Uh, at least for a state that really wants to. Zilkowski notes that when printed books can be condemned and suppressed while they are still pre-release, it's actually quite feasible to destroy a warehouse of books before they ever get to the public. The rise of the digital information economy changes that a bit, but authoritarian governments are still able to limit access to websites, uh, perhaps not absolutely, but nonetheless to a high degree of effectiveness. Of course, this makes the Middle Ages look good just in terms of information survival. Condemned texts may have been harder to eradicate, 
But that went hand in hand with those texts being much harder to access, as Zilkowski says. There's less urgency to destroy something if only a small elite have access to it in the first place. It's when the text is reaching the masses that it becomes meaningful to build the pyres. Trithemius, though, is also not wrong that paper simply does not survive as well as things made from skin. Ask an early modernist or even a Victorianist about the number of books and tracts that have been lost due to physical copies just not remaining intact. You can have a town where the little parish church register has survived from the 13th century, but not a single copy of a decade run of local newspaper from the 19th century still exists. Same goes for many uh, Penny Dreadful and other literal pulp novels. Uh, The acidity of wood pulp paper basically makes it self-destruct over time. And more to the point, one of the reasons it's remained so tricky to date those early block-printed books is because very, very few of them survive. The Gutenberg Bibles fared much better, but then they were higher-end products, and about a quarter of the Gutenberg Bibles were in fact printed on vellum rather than paper one element among a few that bridges manuscript culture with the dawn of printing. Now, before an early book scholar jumps on me, let me note that older paper actually tended to preserve better because it was rag-based rather than wood pulp-based. Brittle pulp paper is primarily a problem for the mid-1800s up to the 1980s. But rag paper versus vellum is still a losing contest for paper overall, And, of course, the other element of this whole comparison is that the things printed on paper, be they late medieval Donatuses or Victorian newspapers or Golden Age comic books, these tended to be perceived as more ephemeral items, not expected to be long-lasting or valuable in their time, and therefore also were not cared for in ways to ensure that a lot of copies survived to the present day. So survival, or at least access, is a key element of the debate over physical versus digital media right now. F.W. Murnau's silent film Nosferatu survived because even after Bram Stoker's estate got an order for all prints to be destroyed for copyright violation, some projectionists out there tucked away their physical reels of Nosferatu in safe places, just like a monk holding on to a valuable manuscript even after its contents have been condemned. But today, for a movie or show that's only ever had a digital release, if the studio decides to pull it from its streaming service, then it could very well be gone for all intents and purposes. Now, someone will always argue that no, someone somewhere will have illegally copied it when it was available, however briefly, and it'll be posted on a torrent somewhere for future generations to access. And that's probably usually true. But history has taught us the lesson that early skeptics of the idea of species extinction learned the hard way. It's not guaranteed that there's always another copy out there somewhere, even in the case of infinitely reproducible digital media. All that said, just to rebalance the argument, it is also fair to point out the huge amount of text and lost classical works that did not, in fact, survive the Middle Ages. Now, this is often less due to active destruction and suppression and more due to simple negligence, Uh, many times a kind of prejudicial negligence, as it were, but nonetheless a passive failure to preserve something rather than active intentional destruction. Many of the deliberately destroyed manuscripts we know of were deliberately destroyed in the early modern era. Also, 
a lot of the loss of medieval and ancient texts can be explained by the issue of scale. A manuscript may well, under good conditions, both physically and culturally, hold up for a couple thousand years, whereas untreated wood pulp paper will basically crumble into confetti after just a half century or so. But, however fine the vellum, when you only have 12 copies of that text that were ever made, then just the normal casualties among books from fire and water and conflict and theft and poverty, all of that leaves pretty good odds that none of those 12 will actually make it into the modern era, even without any deliberate attempts to purge that text from existence. But if you have 500 copies of a cheaply printed book, then the odds that just one of them might survive in readable condition aren't so terrible. Of course, the issue of scale goes the other way too. We've probably lost far more early modern texts than medieval ones just because far more different texts and more ephemeral texts came off those printing presses than were ever hand-copied onto vellum. Likewise, we've lost a great deal of early digital media, especially pre-internet disk-based media, because there was so much of it and it wasn't perceived at the time as having much value or needing preservation. And even the stuff that was preserved is often now difficult or nearly impossible to access because it's in formats that aren't supported by modern applications or hardware. I actually have a whole, I guess the right word for it is rant. So a whole rant on the physical versus digital media debate, uh, which I'm not going to go into here, but we'll put up soon as an appendix to this episode that will be available to all of you who support the show through Patreon. Uh, thank you, Patreon supporters. And with that, let's shift gears to move from the machine back to the man. Johannes Gutenberg, a.k.a. Johann Gutenberg, a.k.a. Hans Gutenberg. And chalk me up as someone who only just discovered that the name Hans derives from a shortening of Johannes. Anyway, Gutenberg's life actually provides us with a nice segue in that one of the surprising things about Gutenberg, uh, to me at least, is, despite the significance of his achievement, how little documentation about him, and particularly his invention, survives from his lifetime. It's a bit like dropping a rock in a lake, where the ripples are very easy to see and trace, but perhaps no one was looking at the moment the rock went in, and all we have are some vague accounts of some movement in someone's peripheral vision. Some of the only surviving evidence we have that Gutenberg was printing things other than the printed things themselves, and even several of those don't have his name on them anywhere, the evidence we have are records from lawsuits involving Gutenberg and his various business partners. So I set this episode up with the idea that the printing press just might be the first example of commercialized technology in our 21st century sense, technology as a commodity and a kind of intellectual property. And with that, Gutenberg fits into the stereotypical paradigm of the modern tech tycoon, your Mark Zuckerbergs or Steve Jobses, with echoes of Edison and Tesla in there as well. Actually, the specific elements of acrimonious partnerships and lawsuits link up pretty well with Zuckerberg, and the secrecy and paranoia evokes Tesla. Putting him more in common with Silicon Valley types, there's also Gutenberg's background, which is this kind of mixture of privilege and garage inventor work ethic. His was a patrician family, a class of wealthy burghers in the cities of the Holy Roman Empire who had made and sustained their wealth as merchants and artisans, actually earning a living and not just collecting rents, though many did that too. But despite being associated with some degree of manual labor, they were afforded a status equal to the minor nobility, 
and even an honorific title, Junker. As I mentioned earlier, Gutenberg shows up in some early records identified as a goldsmith. He is, essentially, an upper-middle-class artisan. His mother was a commoner, which denied him certain privileges, but he still kicks off his career with a leg up. His is not a rags-to-riches story, and a certain amount of arrogance and imperiousness comes through in the accounts of him in the legal records. And let's get into those. The adult Johannes Gutenberg first really appears in the historical documentation in 1434 in Strasbourg, where he is recorded as having acted against his hometown of Mainz for rents and interest they owed him, on account of which he had imprisoned, as was his patrician privilege, Nicholas, the town secretary. The document that survives is Gutenberg's order that Nicholas, having promised payment, be released from prison and forgiven the debt. A relatively generous act, though the kind-heartedness of it is mitigated somewhat by the fact that Gutenberg did push the issue far enough to get Nicholas thrown in prison in the first place. It rather seems like the humiliation of a town official was itself sufficient payback. Most of the other documents we have put Gutenberg on the defensive. We'll take a look at two of those lawsuits, uh, though I will just note as we pass it by a suit of 1437 in which he was accused of breach of promise of marriage, a complaint that was rectified by Gutenberg biting the bullet and marrying the woman in question, one Lady Enelin or Anna. The first record I'll read from is testimony from a lawsuit raised by George Dreetzen against Gutenberg in 1439. Dreetzen's recently deceased brother Andreas had initially partnered with Gutenberg in a scheme to make mirrors to sell to people making the pilgrimage to Aix-la-Chapelle. That's the kind of fine metalworking with a bit of applied chemistry that would certainly be in the wheelhouse of a goldsmith. But this partnership then appears to enter into a new venture that involved the investment of some large sums of money, and here things get a bit mysterious. The terminology of the testimony is somewhat vague, and parts are deliberately shrouded in secrecy. Indeed, the protection of trade secrets is a significant factor in the partnership agreements referenced in the lawsuit. They clearly appear to be doing something new, and a lot of the terms used seem to point straight to the printing press. But the problem is that this is 1439, and our earliest known printed work from Gutenberg is from the 1450s. So what were they doing in the 1430s and 40s that sounds so much like printing, but hasn't left us any other surviving traces? Certainly, some scholars have argued that this operation was not a printing press, but just a continuation of the mirror-making or other stamped metalwork though others have interpreted this as revealing an early prototype of Gutenberg's press, one that maybe only produced a small quantity of printed work that may well have simply not survived. I will just say here that while this deeper mystery of what was really happening behind closed doors in that workshop might sound quite exciting, the actual testimony is maybe a bit dry. Uh, it really is just a lot about who owes who money. I can't promise that you will find it captivating to listen to. What I'll suggest for getting the most out of it, though, is that one of the points of interest in this testimony is just the little portraits of 15th century townspeople's lives that it captures in the setup to the actual legal issues. In that respect, it's a lot like the items from the coroner's rolls that we've looked at previously. 
For example, the very first witness statement rather delightfully records a casual conversation between the late Andreas Dritzen and a townswoman, someone who could well have been utterly lost to historical memory were it not for this peripheral connection to an important technologist. This opening scene also centers on the gap between an ordinary person's expectations about the price or value of things and the actual sums involved in this particular business. To provide a little bit of context that you can hold in the back of your mind as you go into this text, in mid-15th century Germany, you could buy a house for about 500 guilders. So 500 is the price of a house. It's a lot of money. So... Here are some selections from the recorded testimony in the Dritzen Gutenberg lawsuit of 1439, as translated from Alsatian German by Vanderland and thence into English by J.H. Hessels. Here Vanderland and or Hessels has translated some occasionally ambiguous technical terms in a way that is most favorable to the printing press interpretation. Uh, so bear that in mind as you listen. Bärbel von Zebern, the trading woman, also called the little woman, said that she, on a certain night, spoke about several things with Andreas Dritzen. She said, for instance, to him, Won't you go and sleep now? To which he replied, I have to finish this first. Thereupon said this witness, But good gracious, you squander much money. That thing must have cost you more than ten guilders. To this he answered, You are a fool. Do you think it has cost me only ten guilders? Look here. If you had what it cost me, more than 500 guilders ready money, you would have enough for your life. What it has cost less than 500 guilders is very little, except what it will cost me besides. I have therefore mortgaged my house and my ground. Then this witness said to him, Holy passion, what will you do if you fail? He answered, We cannot fail. Before we are one year further, we have back all our capital and are all safe then, unless God be against us. Enel Dritzen, wife of Hans Schultheis, wood merchant, said that Lorenz Bialdeck called once at her house for Klaus Dritzen, her cousin, and said to him, Dear Klaus Dritzen, the late Andreas Dritzen has four pieces lying in a press. Now, Gutenberg has requested that you will take them out of the press and separate them, that no one may know what it is, for he would not like anybody to see it. This witness also said, when she stayed with Andreas Dritzen, her cousin, she had often assisted him in the same work day and night. She also said that she knew quite well that Andreas Dritzen, her late cousin, had at one time or other mortgaged his income. She knew not whether he had used this for the work. Hans Siedenegger declares that the late Andreas Dritzen had often told him that he had spent a great deal of money on the said work, and that it cost him much money, and that he did not know how to act in it. Whereupon this witness answered him, Andreas, if you have been caught, it is necessary that you should get out again. Then Andreas said that he ought to pawn his goods. Witness then advised him to do it, and to tell nobody anything about it, which Andreas did. He did not know, however, whether the sum and the time were great or small. Hans Schulteis said that Lorenz Bialdeck came once at his house to Klaus Dritzen when this witness had seen him home after Andreas had died, at which occasion Lorenz said to Klaus, Andreas Dritzen, your late brother, has four pieces lying underneath the press. Now, Hans Gutenberg has requested you to remove them and to put them separated on the press. No one is able to see then what it is. 
Thereupon Klaus Dritzen went and looked for the pieces, but found nothing. This witness, too, heard a long time ago from Andreas Dritzen that the work had cost him more than 800 guilders. Meidhardt Stocker said that Andreas Dritzen, on St. John's Day at the time of Christmas, when they made the procession, got ill and was laid up in witness's room. Witness came to him and said, Andreas, how are you? Whereupon he answered, I am dangerously ill. If I were to die, I should wish never to have joined the partnership. Why? Because I know that my brothers never agree with Gutenberg. Witness asked him, Is then the partnership not put on paper, or have no people been present? Andreas, Yes, it is written down. Witness asked further how the partnership was made, whereupon he told him that Andreas Heilmann, Hans Riefe, Gutenberg, and he, Andreas Dritzen, had made a partnership, to which Andreas Heilmann and he had contributed each 80 guilders. While they were in partnership, Andreas Heilmann and he went to Gutenberg at St. Arbogast, where the last concealed many arts from them, which he was not compelled to show them. They did not like this, so they had broken up the partnership, and concluded a new one on conclusion that Andreas Heilmann and he should each supply, besides the first 80 guilders, so much that the sum would amount to 500 guilders, and they together would be counted in the partnership as one man. Gutenberg would then conceal from them none of the arts he knew. A contract had been made on this point. If one of them died, the remaining partners would pay his heirs 100 guilders, while the rest of the money should remain in the partnership. This witness, too, knew of Dritzen's pawn. Lorenz Bialdeck said that Johann Gutenberg sent him once to Klaus Dritzen after the death of his brother Andreas to say that he should not show to anyone the press which he had under his care. Witness did so and added that Klaus should go to the press and open the two little buttons whereby the pieces should fall asunder. He should then put those pieces in or on the press that nobody should afterwards make anything of it. And if he happened to go out, he should call on Gutenberg as he had something to talk with him. This witness knew that Johann Gutenberg owed nothing to Andreas, but that Andreas was indebted to Gutenberg and was to pay him by installments, but that he died before he had paid the debt. Witness had often seen Andreas Dritzen dine with Johann Gutenberg, but never seen him pay a penny. Monsieur Anton Heilmann said, when he saw that Gutenberg was willing to accept Andreas Dritzen for a third part in the journey to Aix-la-Chapelle with looking-glasses, he urgently requested him to accept his brother Andreas, too, as a partner. Gutenberg, however, intimated his apprehension that the friends of Andreas should take it to be a deception, or witchcraft, and could thereupon not well give his consent. Anton thereupon prayed again Gutenberg and made out a contract which he could show to both the partners that they might think about it. The consent was given. On this occasion, Andreas Dritzen begged this witness to assist him with money, whereupon he helped him, on security, with ninety pounds, which money he brought to him at St. Arbogast. Witness asked him, What do you ask so much money for, as you don't want more than eighty guilders? Andreas said that he wanted money, as he had to pay Gutenberg eighty guilders two or three days after the beginning of Lent, before Lady Day, 25th March. Witness had to pay the same sum as each of them had, according to their agreement, to pay 80 guilders for the other third part in the profits which was still at Gutenberg's disposal. This money was given to Gutenberg for his share in the undertaking and instruction in the art, but not paid into the common purse. Thereupon, Gutenberg said to Witness that he had to make him another proposition, namely, that there should be equality in everything, because he, Anton, had done so much for him. 
Nobody should conceal anything from the other, whereby the progress of the other arts would be expedited. According to this promise, Gutenberg made a record of it, and said to Anton, Tell the others that they should think well about it, whether it pleases them as it is. This he did, and thereupon they had a long conference. At last he said, Although there is at present so much in store, and we are still making more, that your share in the work comes very near the amount of the money you advanced, yet the art will be communicated to you. So they agreed with him on two points, the one of which was to be quite settled, the other to be explained well. The matter which was to be regarded as settled was that they wished to be under no obligations whatever to Hans Riefe, as they had nothing from him but everything from Gutenberg. The matter which was to be explained was that if one of them happened to die, exact explanation should be given, and they decided that they should, at the end of five years, pay to the heirs of deceased for all things made or still to be made, for the money advanced which every partner had to pay in the expenses, and for the forms, and for all tools, nothing accepted, 100 guilders. This was stipulated in order that, if anyone died, they should not be under the necessity of showing, telling, or revealing the art to all of the heirs. Thereupon the two Andreases told witness, Anton Heilman, that they had come to an understanding with Gutenberg upon the document. Andreas Dritzen had given to Gutenberg 40, Andreas Heilman 50 guilders, as the agreement was, for this term, 50 guilders, before next Christmas, 20 guilders, and afterwards, in March, as much as was stipulated by the record, signed also by witness. Witness acknowledges the contract, and that the money had not been paid into the common purse, but should be for Gutenberg. Neither had Andreas Dritzen paid any money into their partnership, and had never paid for the meals they had taken in the neighborhood of the town at St. Arbogast, where Gutenberg lived. This witness also knew very well that Gutenberg, shortly before Christmas, sent his servant to the two Andreases to fetch all the forms. These were melted before his eyes, which he regretted on account of several forms. Witness knew that when Andreas died, they should have liked to see the press, and that Gutenberg said that they should send for the press, for he feared that anyone should see it. Thereupon he sent his man to take the press to pieces. He also asked his brother, when they did begin to learn, whereupon he answered that Gutenberg still claimed ten guilders from Andreas Dritzen of the fifty which he had to pay on the day of St. Henry. Hans Dunn, the goldsmith, said that he had earned some three years ago about one hundred guilders from Gutenberg, only for that which belonged to printing. So, the judgment issued in this lawsuit found against the claimants and in favor of Gutenberg. He would not be so lucky in the next lawsuit we have record of. Not long after the Dritzen lawsuit, Gutenberg left Strasbourg and returned to his hometown of Mainz. Here he borrows another large sum of money, 800 guilders, from another goldsmith, Johann Fust. This capital seems to have been used to set up an initial workshop and begin printing works, probably those Donatuses I mentioned earlier, as well as a literary text we'll take a quick look at at the end of this episode. But Gutenberg goes back to his patron-slash-investor-slash-creditor Fust for another 800 guilders, which historians believe was for the Bible printing project, which is now the best known of Gutenberg's works. The Bible printing was carried out, with a few adjustments here and there, between 1452 and 1455. The next year, we find Gutenberg being sued by Fust for money owed. 
Details of this suit are preserved in a document known as Helmesberger's Notorial Instrument, named for Ulrich Helmesberger, the royal notary who wrote it down. And here it is, minus the attached affidavit of Fust that just restates the main details of the suit. This translation also comes from Vanderlyn's book. In the name of God, amen. Be it known to all who shall see this public document, or hear it read, that, in the year of our Lord, 1455, on Thursday the 6th of November, between 11 and 12 at noon, at Mainz, in the large dining hall of the convent of barefooted friars, appeared before me, notary, and the witnesses to be mentioned hereafter, the honorable and prudent man, Jakob Fust, citizen of Mainz, and he has, in behalf of Johann Fust, his brother, also present, shown, said, and exposed that to the said Johann Fust on one side and Johann Gutenberg on the other should be administered the oath, according to judgment passed on both the parties, and for which this day and this hour has been fixed and the hall of the convent assigned. In order that the friars of the said convent, who were still assembled in the hall, or refectorium, should not be disturbed, the said Jakob Fust did ask through his messenger whether Johann Gutenberg or anyone for him were present in the convent in order to finish the matter. At this message came into the said refectorium the Reverend Heinrich Gunther, pastor of St. Christopher's at Mainz, Heinrich Keffer, and Bertolf von Hanau, servant of Johann Gutenberg, and when they had been asked by Johann Fust whether they had been authorized by Johann Gutenberg, they answered that they had been sent by Junker Johann Gutenberg to hear and to see what should happen in this case. Thereupon Johann Fust begged leave to conform to the stipulations of the verdict, after he had waited for Johann Gutenberg till twelve o'clock and was still waiting for him. He reads the sentence passed on the first article of his claim, from word to word, with its pretension and response, which runs as follows. First, that he, according to their written agreement, should lend Johann Gutenberg about 800 florins in gold with which was to finish the work, and whether it would cost more or less was no matter to Fust, and that Johann Gutenberg was to pay 6% interest for this money. He had indeed lent him these 800 guilders on a bond, but Gutenberg was not satisfied, but complained that he had not yet received the 800 guilders. For that reason, Fust, being desirous of doing him some service, lent him 800 guilders more than he was bound by his contract to do, for which 800 guilders Fust had to pay 40 guilders as interest. And, although Gutenberg had bound himself by contract to pay 6% interest on the first 800 guilders, yet he had not done so for a single year, but Fust had to pay this interest himself to the amount of 250 guilders. For, at present, Gutenberg having never paid interest, and Fust having been obliged to borrow this interest from Christians and Jews, for which he had paid about 36 florins, his payments, together with the capital, amount to about 2,020 guilders, of which he demands reimbursement. Thereupon, Johann Gutenberg answered that Johann Fust had agreed to lend him 800 guilders, with which money he was to arrange and make his tools, and that these tools should remain a security for Fust. But Fust had moreover agreed to give him every year 800 guilders for expenses, and to advance also wages, house rent, vellum, paper, ink, etc. If, afterwards, they did not agree, Gutenberg should then pay the 800 guilders back, 
and the tool should be free from mortgage. It should be understood that with the 800 guilders he had to make the machine, which was to be a pledge. He hopes not that anyone shall pretend that he was obliged to spend these 800 guilders on the work of the books. And although in the contract it is said that Gutenberg was to pay 6% interest, Fust had told him that he had no intention of accepting this interest from him. Moreover, he had not received the 800 guilders in full and at once according to agreement, as Fust had pretended in the first article of his claim, and as for the second 800 guilders, he is ready to give an account of them, but declines to give him interest or usury for them, and hopes that he is not bound by law to pay them. We pass therefore sentence according to pretension and response. When Johann Gutenberg has submitted an account of all receipts and disbursements spent on the work to their common profit, i.e. printing, this work shall be added to the 800 guilders. If he has spent more than the 800 guilders, which did not belong to their common profit, he should pay it back. If Fust is able to prove on oath or by witnesses that he has borrowed the money on interest and did not lend it out of his own resources, then Gutenberg is bound by contract to pay it. Now, after this sentence had been read in the presence of the aforesaid witnesses, Johann Fust has, with raised fingers, in the hands of me, public notary, taken the oath by all the saints that everything was comprised according to truth and sentence in an act which he placed in my hands. He confirmed it, the act, on oath, as truly as God and the saints may help him. So, Gutenberg didn't show up in person to make his case, and the judgment goes against him. As a result, Fust ends up taking control of the workshop and the printing. The business ethics of this deal are another source of debated interpretation, with who was swindling whom not being entirely clear. It might have been Fust shutting out the aging and over-leveraged Gutenberg to take over a quite profitable business, or Gutenberg may have been trying to funnel those profits into his own attempt to buy out Fust and shut him out of the future profits, and Fust just beat him to the punch. Anyway, Gutenberg never quite gets another major project off the ground. After his legal troubles, he found a position in an archbishop's court as recorded in an act of appointment. Here's that act as given by Vanderland. Quote, We, Adolf, elected and confirmed Archbishop of Mainz, acknowledge that we have considered the agreeable and voluntary service which our dear and faithful Johann Gutenberg has rendered to us and our bishopric, and have appointed and accepted him as our servant and courtier nor shall we remove him from our service as long as he lives, and in order that he may enjoy it the more, we will clothe him every year when we clothe our ordinary suite, always like our nobleman, and give him our court dress. Also, every year, twenty mount of corn and two vor of wine for the use of his house, free of duty, as long as he lives, but on condition that he shall not sell it or give it away, which has been promised us in good faith by Johann Gutenberg, Eltville, Thursday after St. Antony, 1465. End quote. So, as with so much about Gutenberg from his lifetime, this proclamation commends his service, but says nothing specifically about printing. But we do know that Gutenberg continued to print in Eltville, even gathering a new cadre of noble gentlemen as protégés, but he dies in 1468, just three years after his appointment, without ever producing any major work approaching the stature of the Gutenberg Bibles. 
when we hear Gutenberg, we think Bible or maybe police academy if you're a child of the 80s. But there's tons of information out there about the Gutenberg Bible, so instead, I thought I'd close our look at the dawn of the printed word with what might be the earliest surviving text printed on a Gutenberg press. Maybe. As we've seen, the dating of things before the Bibles of 1455 is rather murky and speculative. But it is worth correcting the somewhat common misconception that the Gutenberg Bible was the first printed book. It was not Gutenberg's first project. It was just the most impressive and probably the most commercially successful. What, again, might be the oldest printed European text we have a surviving example of is merely a single fragment of a page. This paper fragment was found in 1892 by a bookbinder in the University Archives of Mainz, incorporated into the sides of a pasteboard container, which is an ironically medieval kind of survival for a fragment of what was a pioneering printed text. This fragment contains lines of rhyming poetry in German. The text has been identified as coming from a poem commonly known by the title the Book of the Sibyls, or the Prophecy of the Sibyl, or in German, the Sibyllenbuch. A Sibyl is a prophetess, and there was a tradition, or really a genre, in the later Middle Ages of purported Sibylline prophecies. These were often a vehicle for subversive political commentary, where a poet could, in the voice of the ancient prophet, predict the fall of a contemporary kingdom or king, or call out abuses of the church, or outline a new social order. The text preserved on our Gutenberg fragment matches up with a 14th century take on the genre, and the specific lines on the fragment we have feature a scene of the Last Judgment on one side, and some more credo-like lines on the other. And here are those lines, starting and ending in the middle of sentences. This is my own rough translation from the German, and I can't vouch for its perfect accuracy, but I think it at least conveys the general idea. From the front, or recto side of the fragment, we have... Live, and here and there God must give judgment. You go there then with horror, who never fear or recognized God. No one can hide from the divine countenance. Christ will utter judgment and avenge all wickedness. Those who never served his will, they will be set apart in eternal torment, and he will give to the good joy, delight, and eternal life. Now the world and all things created around the world perish and are nothing evermore. So one wants... And from the back or verso side, we have... He will always be redeemed from torment. He who is in heaven, he is happy with Jesus Christ. He who came down from heaven and took on human nature and received death, and with him death has died. Whoever believes in him and trusts in him and will have enough faith, who will hear what Jesus Christ says and shall turn all his will and thoughts to Christ in love and remembrance and always have confidence. Now, how do we know that this came from Gutenberg's workshop? And why is it often, though not universally, considered our earliest surviving example of movable type printing from Europe? Well, the answer is the typeface itself the set of metal letters and other characters used to construct the words on the page. Print historians have given this typeface a name. It is called the DK type, which is short for Donatus and Calendar. 
As you might be able to deduce, this is the typeface that Gutenberg used in printing his own Donatus grammars and an astronomical calendar. I have seen some scholars who date the calendar to earlier than the Sibyllenbuch fragment, so that's the chief dispute around the honor of which came first. The dating of the fragment is based on the actual design of the type, which shows less development here than in later printed text. It appears to be an early state of the font. Here's a description of it by Paul Needham, who paints a nice picture of its aesthetic features. Quote, In the Sibyllenbuch fragment, the typography is undisguisedly crude. Letter by letter, the typesetting closely follows the Gothic rules, and yet the results are very irregular. The letters do not keep to an even baseline, and many of them are skewed from the vertical. Many letters do not print cleanly. Similar irregularities appear in scattered vellum fragments of the Ars Minor of Donatus, printed with the DK type. To judge only from these early fragments, one might suspect that typographic printing would have been seen by critical eyes of the time as intrinsically an unsatisfactory substitute for the work of trained scribes. Yet, it is doubtful if early readers held this opinion. The Sibyllenbuch leaf is hand-rubricated, indicating that the pamphlet from which it derives had been a completed work, fully finished for reading. Presumably, many dozens of other now entirely lost copies were likewise marketed successfully. The argument holds even more strongly for the Donatuses printed in the DK type. The various surviving fragments can be shown to belong to numerous different editions, and these fragments too are remnants of fully rubricated copies. Thus, we can say with confidence that schoolmasters in the region around Mainz were satisfied to buy copies of the printed Donatus, and that when one edition was sold out, Gutenberg found it worth his while to print another edition, and then another, in response to this continuing market. There is no point in the history of early printing where we find evidence that readers were resistant to printed texts because of a preference for written versions. End quote. One additional thing to note there in Needham's description is the hand rubrication of the printed page. If you're involved in education or assessment, rubric is probably a familiar term. Today we use it to mean a set of grading or scoring criteria, typically laid out in a table or visual hierarchy. This kind of rubric comes from an older use, meaning a kind of outline or list of headings and key points, and that comes from the original sense, which were headings or passages written in red ink. Rubric comes from Latin ruber, meaning red. Scribal rubricators would rubricate manuscripts to highlight key elements of the text. And a thing to note here is how these early printed texts still required hand rubrication. So the printing press gets you a page of text, but there was still often a considerable amount of hand finishing that went into a completed printed book, including hand coloring or tinting illustrations, adding rubrics, uh, even adding or correcting sections of text by hand. An early printed book is still, in many ways, an artisanal product, and not quite mass-produced in the way modern books are. The culture still had certain expectations carried over from manuscript culture about what a book was that required further effort beyond the use of the press to accomplish. And this effort may also connect to alleviating the anxieties that new transformative technologies can cause. A special effort is often made in the early stages to integrate them into the established mode and aesthetic. 
Gutenberg's DK type is designed to closely imitate black-letter handwriting, including the creation of not just upper and lowercase characters for the standard alphabet, but dozens of special characters for ligatures and traditional scribal symbols, all intended to replicate the experience of reading a manuscript. In modern digital technology, this approach often takes the form of skeuomorphism, a term for when you design a digital interface to imitate the look of an analog counterpart. Uh, the classic examples of this are calendar apps made to actually look like a hard copy day planner with a faux leather frame with stitching around the edges, or note-taking apps that have an illustrated spiral notebook binding down one side of the screen, or pop-up notes that are made to resemble paper post-it notes. I've often heard technologists and designers argue that one clear sign that a new medium has become established or reached maturity is when it ditches skeuomorphism and embraces a design that suits its own native functionality. We see this start happening in print just a few decades after Gutenberg, as printers begin using typefaces that aren't inspired by calligraphy, but rather by the carved letters of Roman monuments. Though you still have to wait until the early 1800s for books to be printed in sans-serif typefaces. Uh, that would be those in the same category as Arial or Helvetica for you non-font heads out there. Now, interestingly, for all the extra characters Gutenberg cast, all those symbols and ligatures, the DK type nonetheless lacked uppercase W and Z. This indicates that it was developed to print Latin text, where those characters don't appear very often. So it's a bit unexpected to find it being used to print a German text, where those characters appear much more frequently. Out of 63 texts known to have been printed with the DK type, only six are German-language texts. And yet, one of the earliest known is the Sibyllenbuch fragment, which hints at the popular market, uh, rather than the elite Latin-reading one, that print is going to open up, and perhaps that Gutenberg was aware of its potential right from the beginning. I think I'll wrap up with a passage from Vanderlind himself, which is a rather striking bit of rhetoric, quite unlike the prose we tend to get from our academic writers today, for better or worse. Here is the professor indulging in a rather lyrical complaint about misconceptions around the appreciation of Gutenberg's achievement. God, art, and typography. These three are one, namely in this respect, that everyone pretends to know equally much of them, and that everyone has a so-called opinion, those two who have not labored in the sweat of their brow to find the way to the temple of knowledge. The atheism of the philosopher, who has scrutinized the history of human knowledge and thought, is judged in absolute ignorance by the thoughtless and heartless Philistine. The wonderful creations of a genius are reduced to a fiat non-entity which stupidity calls taste. Every noodle is a fellow creator, a post-inventor in his own way, of the spiritual cosmogony comprised in the invention of printing. Just as Noodle, who hears people talking about printing, knows at once how he would have invented it, so it was no doubt invented. Of course, Noodle, nothing is more simple than the art of printing. It is printing, you know, and a great quantity has already been printed, and very early too on this earth and Noodle nappingly goes on, perplexed with astonishment, that blunt humankind had to wait so many centuries for that simple printing. 
Had it not been, properly speaking, the duty of Adam to invent it the first time he saw the impressions of Eve's little feet on the ground after he had been raking paradise? Or when Cain and Abel came from school on a snowy day? At such questions, Noodle becomes a perfect misanthrope. Oh, those miserable prejudices, quite ready before all investigations and which plunge all questions into a chaos. The most common prejudice is the supposition a priori, legitimated strictly scientifically by nothing, that printing with movable types was only an improvement on that with wooden blocks in which the letters were cut, that it originated from wood engraving, that it was a development of it, an extension, a fortunate application, the highest step of the ladder, consisting of playing cards, images of saints, pictures with super, sub, and other scriptions, text without pictures. In short, xylography, in a technical, logical, and reformatorical sense, would be the mother of typography. But it is only such in the sense of an external impulse, of an external push to meditating on quite another means than wood or metal engraving, on another mode of obtaining books. Zell finds that push in Block Donatus's, but the inspiration of genius, the first invention of a quite independent art, of a totally new principle, which has nothing in common with wood and metal engraving, he ascribes, in accordance with the universal opinion of the 16th century and all of Europe, to Gutenberg. In Gutenberg's mind, the grand idea arose that all words, all writing, all language, all human thoughts could be expressed by a small number, a score, of different letters arranged according to the requirements. That, with a large quantity of those different signs, united to one whole, a whole page of text could be printed at once, and repeating this process continually, large manuscripts could swiftly be multiplied in as great a number as was wanted. This thought, this idea, begot the invention of typography. In that moment, it was conceived in Gutenberg's mind, and it was born when the fullness of time had come. Every other explanation is at once unhistorical and unpsychological. So, there's one effusive argument for the individual genius of Gutenberg. And I'll let you find your own balance of skepticism between that and the larger context of business partners and assistants and influences and travelers' tales of Eastern wonders that might have all had their own roles to play in this narrative. Let's wrap up this 100th episode with a riddle about scale. Uh, it also fits our topic as it comes straight from an early English printed book, the Demons Joyous. Here's the riddle. What space is from the highest space of the sea to the deepest? They're asking for a measurement there, a distance. Uh, more plainly put, the riddle is, how deep is the sea? Before you answer, perhaps speculating on what medieval people's beliefs about the sea were, let me tell you this. The answer given in the Demons Joyous is correct. All right, ready? How deep is the sea? Here's the answer from the text. The depth of the sea is, but a stone's cast. For a stone thrown in, be it never so deep, will go to the bottom. That is, it's as deep as you can throw a rock, uh, if you throw that rock into the sea, at least. Not a bad riddle. And speaking of the Demons Joyous, this is a perfect moment to include a little bit from it that isn't a riddle, 
It's a notice printed on the final page that reads as follows. Thus endeth the demands joyous, printed at London in Fleet Street at the sign of the sun, by me, Winken de Word, in the year of our Lord, M-C-C-C-C-C-X-I, or 1511. William Caxton is generally credited as the first printer in England, but it's possible that Winken de Word was England's first true typographer. Caxton's printing business started out not in England, but in Flanders, in Bruges. Uh, Also, he traveled to Cologne to see the fledgling printing industry and may well have seen Ulrich Zell there, our Cologne Chronicle informant. That was in 1473. In 1476, Caxton set up the first press in England, and he either brought with him from the continent a German-born printer, winking to word, in that year, uh, or he may have hired him a few years later, but either way, de Word is credited with significantly improving the technical quality of Caxton's shop, and he inherited the business after Caxton's death in 1492. De Word moved the shop from Westminster to Fleet Street, which then became London's printing hub for centuries, and he also set up the first bookstall in the churchyard of St. Paul's Cathedral, which similarly became the center of the London book trade afterwards. Not only that, he was the first to use italic type in an English book, and the first to print music with movable type in England. So, Winken de Word might forever sit second place to William Caxton, but his impact on the history of English printing should not be overlooked. Not to mention, he's provided this show with a whole bunch of riddles from the Demons Joyeuse, so there's that too. Speaking of people who should not be overlooked, I'd like to acknowledge my new and returning Patreon patrons since last episode. Thank you so much, Shelby, Antonios, M.M., Christine, and Celia. Our patrons get access to bonus audio content, including an audiobook of Jordanus's Wonders of the East. You can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. That's at patreon.com slash mdtpodcast. You can also still follow us on Twitter for the time being, uh, at MDT Podcast, or now Instagram at Medieval Death Trip. I haven't done much with Instagram since our advent calendar, but I'm hoping to be more engaged there this summer with little visual items and even short audio texts as reels. And lastly, if you're a more old-fashioned, scribal type of person, you can reach me by email sent to patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. And at that same web domain, you can always find more information about each episode, including bibliographic references. Thus concludes our 100th episode spectacular. Probably more spectacular in length rather than topic, uh, but at least it wasn't a clip show. And speaking of old-fashioned, probably only 90s kids and older even really know what a clip show is, since that's a format that's largely vanished with the death of the traditional sitcom. Uh, It looks like even The Simpsons, which had some very notable season-filler clip shows in its early days, hasn't produced one since 2002. So now I feel especially old. Uh, Let's stop there. So until next time, may all your paper be acid-free and your edges deckled, and thanks for listening to up to 100 episodes of Medieval Death Trip. Maybe even 101 if you count the prologue, and more if you count the appendices. And heck, if you are a listener who has actually listened to every uh, main feed episode, reply to the episode post on Twitter or Instagram. I'd be fascinated to find out how many, uh, if any, of you there are out there. And again, thanks, and talk to you next time.